Welcome to the Energy Intelligence Podcast. This is the latest installment of our competitive intelligence series where we discuss how recent events are affecting the strategies of some of the most important energy companies. Uh, My name is Luke Johnson. I'm the deputy editor of the Energy Intelligence Finance Newsletter. And today we're going to pull the curtain back a little bit on an extensive revamp of that newsletter, which we are very excited about. And this is all part of a broader rethink of how we present our news, data, and analysis. And you'll be hearing much more about it in the coming months. But to talk about the revamp of energy intelligence finance today, we have got two of the people overseeing these changes. Casey Merriman, who you've heard many times before on this podcast, is the head of our competitive intelligence service. How's it going, Casey? Good. How are you, Luke? I'm good. And in what I believe is her first appearance on this podcast, but hopefully not the last, we also have the managing director of our research and advisory unit, Monica Enfield. Thanks for being here, Monica. Thank you. So Casey, just briefly, how exactly is this EIF, as we like to call it, going to be different from how it's looked in the past? Yeah, I mean, I think really quickly, the broader feedback we have from all of our clients, and I think we can understand ourselves, is there isn't a lack of information out there. If anything, there's too much information, and it can be kind of like drinking from a hose to get the the analysis and, and insight you need kind of as quickly and concisely and as relevant as possible. And so what we, we've done with, with EIF is kind of overhauled it to make it a much more concise publication, but also just a lot harder hitting on the analysis, really kind of try to bridge the gap between our editorial and our research teams to to really focus on, you know, what this podcast tries to do, the most kind of relevant and pertinent trends and developments in corporate strategy uh, for the industry's largest players. And so kind of what the publication offers is, you know, a quick hit house view on some of the most important developments in the space. And then we've really tried to push in kind of the the meat of, of the publication, really kind of data heavy qualitative analysis uh, that kind of gives you um, kind of a must read recap of, of some of the mo- those most important trends. So, and I think, you know, what we kind of see it as is an upgraded offering that really complements so nicely what the the business and competitive intelligence unit of, of our research and advisory uh, division does. And I don't know, Monica, if you want to maybe touch on some mm-hmm. of those. Yeah, absolutely. So on a weekly basis, what you guys are doing in energy intelligence finance just dovetails very nicely with the corporate strategy profiles that we have in business and competitive intelligence service. Uh, It covers 36 of the key operating companies ranging from the super majors to the largest national oil companies to integrated majors and independents. And what we're really trying to do Uh, to differentiate ourselves with a variety of other kind of uh, products out there that look at corporate strategy is is to put it into context, which companies will be successful in these evolving strategy uh, execution and why. Um, So more than talking about individual assets and that present values are just kind of a simple barrel counting exercise, we're putting it all together so you can understand how the E&P strategy fits in with the uh, energy transition strategy with the downstream putting it all together in a concise way for clients. Uh, On top of those corporate strategy profiles that are updated once a year or 
in this case, which we'll talk about later uh, as consolidations take place, uh, refreshed those profiles along with a quarterly look at uh, M&A resource access and other topical issues. Okay, well, um, we'll be hearing much more about how this is sort of uh, changing how we approach some of our coverage uh, you know, uh, in the near future. But uh, today, I think we will be talking about uh, just some of the topics that we'll have been covering in EIF and will continue to cover. But just the, the news has been coming so fast and furious the last uh, several weeks, uh, we thought we might jump around to a couple of key topics um, today. Um, you know, we could probably spend a whole podcast talking about any number of these. Uh, but we We'll just start uh, talking about M&A in the energy sector. And it does appear that the long predicted wave of M&A, particularly in oil and gas, is finally here. The deal count is growing fast and we are seeing new mergers now, it seems like, every week um, be announced. So I'm going to throw it to you guys. Uh, Why is this happening now? And how much more of this consolidation should we expect to see in the near term? Yeah, I can kind of maybe speak to the the corporate level consolidation first. And I know Monica will have some insights on kind of the asset side of the, the ledger. But I mean, even before this downturn, we saw executives in the industry starting to have conversations, realizing that some of the challenges that the industry is facing, even if it's not immediate, um, are systemic. And it, it means a need to kind of rethink the business in a more fundamental way. And what the kind of conclusion around some of those discussions was is, is a need uh, to move away from the fragmented kind of setup of the, of the corporate landscape, a need for scale. Um, and that scale is needed for a couple reasons. I mean, there's efficiency and cost cutting, um, but also as kind of pressures around ESG um, kind of are on the rise as well, uh, meeting some of those rising demands uh, can be more easily done and under larger companies. And so what the downturn has essentially done is just forced all of those issues to come to a head and severely stressed, you know, com- uh, companies' ability to feel like they can successfully thrive and not just survive longer term. So what, we, what we've seen with a lot of the, the, the big deals is that you're actually seeing some of the companies who we think of as the larger, you know, better financed, uh, kind of stronger operator companies actually, you know, merging or, or being takeover targets themselves. You know, again, I think that just the definition of scale has, has risen. And so we definitely expect this to continue and just, you know, across the landscape, um, you know, we, we will see a thinning of the number of companies that operate across the global industry over time, whether it's, you know, consolidation, whether it's bankruptcies, whether it's just outright exits. But this is certainly kind of, I think, the tip of the iceberg for a longer term trend. Yeah. And, you know, obviously the the consolidations take the, you know, the headlines, but uh, we did keep an eye on the asset deals um, that are taking place, certainly not to the scale of, you know, a major takeout. Um, but you know these they they are there are some asset deals that are occurring. Uh, the challenge, of course, is getting asset valuations to work in the current price band we're we're, we're working with, and that's very difficult. Um, but where select companies that have the financial power and uh, 
you know, have, have that ability. Uh, they're, they are kind of pulling the trigger on some deals and I'm, I'm pointing to uh, Carlisle being able to take over um, asset, Occidental's assets in Colombia for 700 million. Um, some select North Sea deals, uh, London taking over some Barrent Sea uh, assets from Inpex. Uh, definitely private equity, like high tech vision saying, hey, we want to spend more in the North Sea and we're going to spend a hundred, you know, a, a billion dollars to do so. Um, but it's not just the, the kind of known places like the North Sea or the U.S. shale patch, you know, where we can. Uh, there have been a few deals in West Africa. Um, again, Woodside having the ability to take over Cairns stake uh, in Senegal rather than let it go to Luke Oil. Um, Long-standing player in West Africa, Valco, taking on a larger stake in Equatorial Guinea, or even Perenco, uh, continuing to take over assets from Shell and Gabon. So these types of deals, they don't, you know, they're pretty lower value, but they, they continue to take place. Another thing that we really need to keep an eye on is the pretty large divestment targets from the majors. Um, some of them are resuming those marketing of, uh, of assets that kind of slowed down during the height of the coronavirus uh, earlier in the year. But ExxonMobil, probably close to, to executing on a sale of its assets in Malaysia, definitely trying to market its UK North Sea assets, as well as in Australia, the Bass Straits with BHP. Uh, Shell also doing the same in, in parts of Southeast Asia and Alaska. So, uh, you know, we'll watch that space because all the majors, again, have assets that they, they would like to <laughs> get off the books. Um, and we'll see if, if, the, if the buyer can find, uh, get it at the right price. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I, obviously, a lot of this uh, kind of portfolio management is driven by just the incredible amount of pressure on oil and gas companies to be profitable at a time when when commodity prices are just not cooperating. And of course, that's compounded by just tighter access to capital industry-wide and, you know, as well as rising political risk, even in traditionally stable countries like the U.S., um, where we're looking at a um, potentially contentious handover of power. Uh, so, Casey, how, how are companies factoring, factoring in these increasing pressures, both on the political side as well as the investor side? Yeah, I mean, I think what we've seen is, again, so much of what the downturn has done is that it has accelerated trends that were already in the works beforehand. And one of the things that we have seen is a pullback in the kind of global availability of capital capital to oil and gas. And what we've seen is, you know, the number of banks willing to lend to upstream has retreated. Those that still are willing to, learn, uh, to lend are more selective. Um, and also oil and gas uh, lending is having to compete under kind of wider umbrellas against infrastructure and, and renewables. And that in turn kind of layers on uh, kind of more stringent ESG benchmarking as well. And so what we have seen is, again, this trend has only accelerated this year. Um, the number of banks that continues to pull back or be more selective seems to rise by by the week. And it, it means more expensive capital for the industry. It means potentially facing um, some kind of, you know, benchmarking or, you know, ESG, ESG threshold that has to be met to, to potentially engage in affordable capital. And then there's, of course, the kind of equity investor side of things where we've seen just a, a massive retreat, um, despite what's happened uh, maybe this week, you know, with a bunch of kind of short sellers being squeezed. It, it doesn't kind of change the wider 
wider shift, which is investors have gotten burned uh, on returns for years uh, long ahead of, of the current situation. And then when they look ahead, they, they aren't so sure about the future prospects of oil. And so they, the value proposition has been lost. And so what we're really kind of seeing is companies have to say, okay, look, if we want to keep our social license to operate, um, and that's where kind of the political risk uh, can can come in. If we want to be able to be compelling, you know, public sector companies that that look for for, for public money, um, if we want to continue to have access to to affordable lending, uh, we need to do two things. We need to improve returns and consistently demonstrate capital discipline, and we need to to fix. Kind of the carbon footprint that that this idea of just because you want to remain an oil and gas producer say versus maybe taking a more kind of portfolio diversification strategy uh, it doesn't preclude you from having to to address those issues and so uh, we're really kind of seeing this i'd say kind of almost like a wave i mean maybe what started as kind of the most acute pressures in europe um, are starting to be felt in the us and and actually you know kind of more on the customer side in asia this is these are things that are not going away these pressures are are only going to be building moving forward so monica i mean one of the probably most complicated pieces of this is that climate piece or, you know, kind of as cases of the social license to operate. And it is something that we've talked, we've discussed quite a bit um, in, in the past, but, you know, clearly a lot of companies are looking hard at their emissions profile, partly in the name of social responsibility, but also because it's something that investors are demanding. So how are these emerging climate goals really translating into corporate strategy right now? Yeah, it, we're, we're seeing a three-stage progression, if you will. So companies assessing this like, okay, we need to figure out a way to engage, we need to commit, and then we need to implement. And you know, when we look at it in detail across the range of companies we look at in the BCI service, you know, on the engagement element, the first step is disclosure. So it's you know those key climate-related disclosures are all going to be... Um, reported, especially emissions data, including scope three. And that's really the key there is we've had a proliferation of announcements of, you know, net zero uh, ambitions, but, you know, the element of scope three needs to be there. In terms of governance, um, companies are now providing much clearer governance responsibilities for climate risks and the energy transition strategy. And then finally, uh, remuneration, you know, executive pay explicitly linked to the energy strategy and those stated targets. So that's kind of the first stage engagement. And then the second prong is the commitment. So it's, you know, setting these long-term emissions goals, including scope three that are consistent with Paris agreement objectives and, you know, the global 2050 net zero pathway. Um, and then finally, there's that third, and this is the challenging part, the implementation. So it's setting some short and medium term uh, intermediate targets on emissions reductions, uh, usually to 2030. Uh, but again, towards that overall 2050 ambition, uh, it's seen a, a lot of new revised strategy plans. Uh, so how are you going to articulate a credible business model, model and a corporate strategy to meet these intermediate targets. And then finally, as, as Casey already mentioned, CapEx. You need to set appropriate capital spending plans across both your, your upstream oil and gas, 
as well as your you know, low carbon uh, technologies and business units that are consistent with these targets. So it's ambitious, it's, it's challenging. Uh, the European firms definitely have a jump on it uh, because they face the most pressure. But we fully expect U.S. Uh, majors, independents, national oil companies, uh, that these demands will evolve, uh, forcing greater action. Okay, well, uh, let's just to wrap up here, let's get a bit more into the portfolio management side of things, but, um, you know, just kind of in the context of, of what we've already talked about. But, you know, as companies are focusing on their most advantaged assets, whether that means the lowest cost or the lowest emissions, um, a, a lot of assets are at risk of being orphaned with, with no one left to develop them. And at the same time, the integrated model that has historically been such a strength of the largest companies is really undergoing a pretty big rethink. So how do we see some of these portfolios shaping up over the next, say, five to 10 years, both in terms of their diversification and the strategic role some of their specific assets play? Yeah, I mean, I think what we're seeing is kind of the shift, as you mentioned, the word advantaged. I mean, in the upstream, so think about it, regardless of whether you're an integrated company, a, a national oil champion, or, or an independent producer, uh, there everyone needs to try to hold on or gain access to the lowest cost uh and preferably lower carbon assets that are available. And so while we we know that we have this situation uh, where we've seen an era of abundance, where there is way more oil and gas out there than the world will likely ever need to consume, it, it doesn't uh, cancel out the need potentially for some you know selective exploration. It doesn't cancel out the need for acquisitions because basically what you need is a high grading of assets to to try to ride out what at, at some point will be a, a peak oil demand and you know eventual decline um, kind of scenario. And so, um, you know, that that is just really challenging because there are only so many of those assets, of course. And so it, it puts kind of heightened pressure on on gaining gaining that access and trying to build portfolios around that. But, you know, it also applies, say, to the downstream, too. This is actually one area where things have been highly active this year, where we are seeing, you know, a number of refineries uh, shutter. Uh, they're con being converted to terminals. They're being converted to biorefineries. Uh, we have heard from someone like, you know, the likes of Shell, that they are going to you know, only hold a, a handful of high, already highly integrated you know, chemicals and, and, and refining assets. But with the idea that over time, these essentially become places for further integration with biofuels and biofeedstocks and you know, even biochemicals and, and perhaps even you know, locations where you also have, say, you know, solar power as well. So um, the, the call on integration actually becomes even larger and becomes more diverse, but the number of assets that can can compete becomes smaller. And it, and it just means that kind of the, the place for, you know, kind of less sophisticated, uh, you know, standalone players, you know, shrinks. So there's there's a consolidation that will happen there. And then I think too, you know, what we're, we're seeing is, um, you know, a shift in this I idea of really moving from 
a kind of a supply focused mentality to a customer driven mentality. I mean, this is an oversimplification, but, you know, generally speaking, you know, oil is one of the most fungible commodities out there. Uh, at the end of the day, if demand is always growing, you produce it, it will find a market. Um, and that's just kind of not where things are moving. And so we're really seeing a move to kind of these really highly optimized trading strategies, looking at um, being kind of an energy supplier uh, for you know, municipalities, large customers, in addition to maybe your your corner stores. And but that means providing a suite of, of energy types to meet that, um, you know, and then, of course, you're you're matching all that with with low carbon investments. And so, you know, for the for the European majors, uh, you know, that has meant really thinking toward moving uh, toward extensive renewable power portfolios um, for the U.S. firms, like we heard from from Occidental, you know, yesterday, they have set forward net zero ambitions, but are looking at direct air capture, right? Essentially, you know, carbon capture that allows them to maintain being a, an oil producer, you know, kind of in perpetuity. So we're, we're, you know, we're just seeing this huge mix, like kind of across across the spectrum. Uh, you know, Monica, I don't know if maybe you could add some more on, on maybe kind of the integrated gas front, because there's some really interesting stuff going on there. Yeah. And, and as you mentioned, you know, we're the European majors have already embraced kind of this radical reorganization. And if you kind of map out what, what the new shell and what the new BP looks like, you know, there, there's very discrete boxes where these, you know, uh, these business lines lie and integrated definitely seems to be the order of the day. Um, well before um, the latest uh, price downturn, well before coronavirus, you know, we've had a lot of companies bank on integrated gas uh, for a year, number of years now. And that that's relevant and, and demonstrated through their LNG uh, portfolio. And, and one of the ways that we've always kind of approached this is it's not just monetizing upstream reserves, it's, it's building portfolio depth uh, with those uh, optimized trading strategies. It's developing markets, um, moving downstream, creating more business for yourself in, in new uh, locations, and that value chain integration that's going to work hand in hand with the low carbon element of the business strategy. We see some companies more advantaged than others. Uh, Shell, Total, and BP kind of top our list um, with, with others having some areas that they need to improve upon and work on. So as you mentioned, you know, the integrated nature um, is going to be key to long-term survival. And you know, because the European majors are several steps ahead in these reorganizations, uh, we'll be watching to see how um, you know, the national oil companies follow suit in the next 10 years, kind of back to your original question, Luke. So, you know, how do these national oil companies balance the needs of maintaining a highly cost competitive resource base with other really, you know, relevant state economic priorities, uh, you know, adapting that portfolio mix towards high demand segments, and then, you know, also uh, meeting those uh, energy transition obligations. So that that's what we'll also be looking at a lot in our in our upcoming research is the national oil companies and how they manage the energy transition. Okay, well, um, I think we're gonna have to leave it there for now. Um, as I said, there's uh, 
way too many topics and just not enough time. But these are some of the types of things that we'll be focusing on in our, you know, as we as we develop our competitive intelligence coverage over the next uh, several months and, and years. And uh, if uh, you want to read more about all those things, um, we got plenty on our website. So please go visit that at energyintel.com. Um, but in the meantime, uh, thanks both you guys very much. Um, appreciate the time. Uh, thanks a lot, Casey. Absolutely. Thanks, Luke. And thank you, Monica. Oh, thank you. And thanks to everyone for listening. Uh, as I said, please go check out uh, energyintel.com to read more of our news and views and subscribe to any of our services or newsletters. My name is Luke Johnson, and we will see you next time. Thank you.